All right. Uh, if you would, grab your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 3. Uh, if you have a copy of your confession, you can kind of make a mental note, uh, chapter 2 of our confession. Uh, but Exodus chapter 3 is going to be kind of a guiding text for us this morning. Confessions can be found also in the back of the hymnal. Oh, <laughs> thank you for the sign. We'll be in Exodus chapter 3. It's <laughs> awesome. So at the uh, pastor's fraternal, it was my job to <clears throat> preach a sermon on the doctrine of divine simplicity. Who has uh, read on that or even knows what that means? You don't have to show of hands, but um, it is a rather technical topic, but I think we can get through it. So let's, uh, let's read Exodus 3, 1 to 15, then I'll pray and we'll get started. So that's Exodus 3.1. Now Moses was keeping the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight while the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. for The place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt... You shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for this day, 
for the mercy of the Lord's day where we can rest in Christ knowing that the work has been completed in him, that he is our eternal and faithful high priest. He is I am. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would help us to focus our minds and our hearts on a very difficult but needful subject. I pray that it not be just a a message for the head, but it be a message for the heart. You would open our hearts to understand these things. In Christ's name I ask, amen. Well, just a little bit of where we're going uh, this morning. Uh, Can somebody maybe, can everybody see that? Maybe dim the lights a little bit. Thank you. That good? Not good? Too small? Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, I'll read it out loud. So, uh, first, an introduction, a little bit of the history, a little bit of the definition. Um, We'll talk about God's attributes, and we'll look at Exodus 3, and then possibly some practical thoughts at the end of the day. So, somewhat of the introduction. So, we know the story well, Moses in Exodus 3. It's a revelation of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. Uh, Moses was a shepherd keeping the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro. Jethro had probably died by that time. Jethro was a priest of Midian. I don't think he gets any bigger, brother. That's, uh, yeah, that's as big as it goes. We just have to scoot him back. So just listen to him. Um, so for a man of his education and experience, being a, being a shepherd is really a poor man's job. Uh, you, you remember where Moses came from, uh, what he was privy to in Egypt. And it shows Moses' uh, meekness and contentment. But it also f- affords us a beautiful picture of how at one time this man had known all the heights of intellect and access to information that Moses had in Egypt. Yet when he encounters God in the calling of God and the revelation of God to Moses, Moses was brought to take off his sandals because he was standing uh, on holy ground. He was identifying himself, or God was making him identify himself with the very earth from which he came. And this vision, this experience that Moses had in the burning bush really was a paradigm for the rest of Moses' ministry. Um, it, as a servant in the house of God, it was indispensable for Moses to get who God was in the revelation of himself. And it also was very practical for the people of God as they traveled through the wilderness. And so everything we learn about God through Moses's ministry is really tied to this encounter, though it comes in the book of Exodus we don't know anything about Moses' life before this, before this event, and I would, I would argue that this was Moses' conversion. He encountered God here for the first time. God called him not only out of the world, but called him to himself to be a servant in the house of God. And this revelation of God in the bush, in the burning bush, was, uh, among many other things, a revelation, a space-time illustration of God's singularly simple being. So that's our task this morning to talk about the simplicity of God. Um, It may be strange to you to think about the word simple because when we talk about someone in life who is simple, we normally say something like they lack the sophistication to live 
life in a full manner. They're simple-minded. Um, we have more respect for things that are very complex. Uh, any mechanics in the room, if you've ever worked on a, a 60s model Ford F100, and then you go to a Tesla, you think, okay, well, the Ford is a lot more simple and the Tesla is a lot more complex. Uh, when we talk about the simplicity of God, however, it's not a matter of um, complexity makes him somehow more efficient or better. Um, to call a man simple is really kind of an insult sometimes. But to call, but to call God simple is to really give him uh, glory in such a way that pushes the limits of our own minds. Uh, perhaps nowhere else are we brought to really the precipice of uh, the ineffable glory of God than when we consider God's simplicity. So uh, like with many things, uh, our minds can't fully comprehend this, but our faith can apprehend this. Does that make sense? Where our minds can't fully comprehend, we can believe by faith the revelation of God uh, in and of himself. And so Herman Bovink uh, aptly says that mystery is the lifeblood of dogmatics. Mystery is the lifeblood of dogmatics. Dogmatics being uh, teaching about who God is. So here we're able to apprehend but not comprehend. God is ultimately incomprehensible. So the simplicity of God really is a doctrine that's been confessed since the early church. Uh, I'll rattle off some names. If you don't know those names, that's okay. Um, Irenaeus confessed the simplicity of God. The three Cappadocians, Gregory Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, Basil of Caesarea, uh, Augustine, the medieval scholastics, the Reformed, the post-Reformation Reformed Orthodox. All of these have made a confession about God's simplicity. Now, it's not always been treated, though, as a formal attribute of God like love or justice or mercy or wrath. But it has been understood and taught by the church over the ages. Many in the Reformed tradition uh, identify God's simplicity as a defining category, but not a formal attribute. John Calvin, uh, since we would call ourselves Calvinists probably here in this room, John Calvin, uh, as one uh, writer uh, records, indicates no interest whatsoever in speculating about divine simplicity, but he could confess it when it was necessary as, a, as an underpinning of the Christian understanding of God. So before we get to the statement, God is love, we have to kind of erase that word love and get back to the very essence or being of God, that God is. And that's what we're considering this morning, the, the godness of God, okay? That's hard for our minds to think about, but I hope to make it practical. So you may be surprised our own confession, 1689, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, never uses the term simplicity. Uh, we, we can't fall into the word concept fallacy, however. Uh, one theologian has said, what may be uh, by sound logic deduced from Scripture, that is what is necessarily contained in it, has the authority of Scripture itself. So whatever we can deduce from Scripture, soundly, by logic, that which is necessarily contained in Scripture, has the authority of Scripture itself. So simply because the word simplicity is not there 
doesn't mean the concept is not there. Okay, we can't fall into that word concept fallacy. So our confession articulates the doctrine uh, of simplicity in an obvious way when it confesses God's oneness, that he uh, that his subsistence is in and of himself. And then more explicitly, when it says that God is without parts, if you look, you don't have your confessions, that's okay. But you have in paragraph one, this more full statement that says, uh, the Lord our God is but one living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself. For you theologians in the room, that's aseity. He is a se. It's a Latin phrase for saying in and of himself. Infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended but by anyone but himself. And here's the phrase. <clears throat> a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. Now, uh, our pastor this morning is going to probably explain that without, uh, without passions to us. But we're talking about that God is without parts this morning. God is without parts. So this claim is further supported by a, a text that backs up this chapter in Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, 14 and 15 uh, reads, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of a fire, <clears throat> beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, etc. So we begin to get a clue into how God views idolatry. Idolatry is this thing that we form with parts either in our minds or with our hands. And so God gives us a warning in Deuteronomy 6. Watch yourselves very carefully since you saw no form. Since you saw no form. So we can see the spirituality of God here. You saw no form. I have a form. Okay, I'm a body with parts. But we also see God's invisibility. You saw no form. So from this, this his most pure spirituality and his independence, his dependency on creatures, he has no dependency on creatures. From him and through him and to him are all things, right? From this, we reason that God has no parts. No parts, no body, no parts, no composer, no composition, okay? Since God's subsistence, his life, his being is in and of himself, he's not made or composed. He has no components. And unlike the idols of the nations, he has no parts. If you read Isaiah 44, uh, Psalm 115 is another one, where God uh, gives this scathing rebuke in Isaiah 44 of the gods of the nations. They have eyes but can't see. The idol worshiper fashions the god together and then yet worships that thing he's fashioned. What we're talking about here is a God that has no components. He's not composed of anything. So our confession further says that we worship one God who is not to be divided in nature and being. So as Baptists, as Baptists, we have uh, historically confessed the simplicity of God twice in our own confession of faith. We've said this is a doctrine we believe twice now. 
And so that's very, very important. The only confession that I know of that uses the word simplicity in just plain terms is the Belgic Confession of 1561. And you have to remember again, I'm giving this to giving this information to pastors, so they're just like, Whoa! they love this kind of stuff. Um, Belgic Confession of 1561 says, we all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God. Pretty straight, straightforward, terse statement there. So this begins to kind of clear up uh, by way of definition uh, what we mean by divine simplicity. So what, what is a definition of divine simplicity? How could we kind of boil it down to a definition? To say that God is simple is to confess that he is a perfect unity without composition or division. Okay, maybe the next slide will help with that. He's a, he's a perfect unity without composition or division. That is the rear subframe, a diagram of the rear subframe of a 1990 300 ZX, Nissan 300 ZX. One of my favorite cars of all time. Okay. Yep. Uh, God is not made of multiple parts composed together to make God God. All right. <laughs> um, any mechanics in the room, they're like, yeah, now you're talking my language. Guys know what this is. So that's, that's the just uh, one aspect of a car all of those parts come together to make a rear subframe to hold your wheels together so that you can go down the road but a most pure spirit as our confession says as the scriptures say a most pure spirit most basically has no parts he has no components cars have parts so you see that there um, houses have parts Human beings have parts, but not so with God. He's not the final product of an assembly line of things more ultimate than himself by which those things added together make God who he is. It's not like an assembly line of love and justice and mercy come down the line and there's someone grabbing those parts, putting them together, and the, the final product at the end of the assembly line is God. That's not our God. So what is a part, you ask? We're talking about God has no parts. Brother Brandon's going to talk about God has no passions. Well, what is a part? We confess God is, has no parts. So tune your, tune your mind in here. This is a very dense statement, but it's true. A part is anything in a subject that is less than the whole and without which the subject would be really different than it is. Let me say that again. A part is anything in a subject that is less than the whole without which the subject would be really different than it is. I'm a man. I have hair or did. I have eyes. I have ears. I have hands. Should I be without any of those things? And I am without one of them. I don't cease in my nature to be a man. Our souls even have parts, but we're not truly simple like God. When we sin, the soul that sins, it shall die, the scripture says. But when my soul sins, 
I expose the fact that I can lack a part. I can lack faithfulness. I can lack joy, contentment, or wisdom in my very soul because I am fundamentally uh, a parted man. I'm made up of things. Maybe this would help. This is a Lego man. Everyone, every parent in this room has stepped on one in the middle of the night with your bare feet <laughs> and wondered why in the world you bought them for your children. So this is a Lego man. He's fully assembled. He's fully assembled. His head is less than the whole of him. And without his head, he's no Lego man. His arms are less than the whole of him. And without those arms, he is no Lego man. Each of these things are less than the whole. Each part of him is added together in an assembly line to make the whole Lego man who he is. Without his head, he would be really different than he is. Does that help at all? We're mainly defining what God is not here. Maybe I could frame it in the form of a question. Is there anything that is not God that makes God to be God? Is there anything not God, me, or you, our minds, our efforts? Is there anything not God that makes God to be God? We say no. Is there some composer of things which is more ultimate than God himself that puts together those things to make God who he is? Is love and wisdom an attribute more ultimate than God, which put together, glued together, makes God God? I don't think so. The scripture says God is love. Not that just he has love or he expresses love, but as to his very essence, his nature, he is love. John 4, God is spirit. Not just that he has a spirit, he is spirit. And God is light, 1 John 1, 5. God is light. Keep that idea of light in your mind. We'll get there in just a moment. God is the first being. We confess in him we live and move and have our being. We have being, beloved. He is being. We have being given from him, given by by one more ultimate than ourselves. He is being, he's life itself. His life is possessed by none more ultimate than himself. Think about this. To affirm that God has no parts, the 300ZX up there that we looked at, to confess that God has parts, if God is composed, if God has parts, that would be an explicit violation of the second commandment, would it not? Our minds compose idols, and we worship and serve them. Our hands compose idols, and we worship and serve them. Now, as the composer of idols, don't we expose the foolishness of worshiping something we say is more ultimate than us, yet simultaneously composed by us? Isn't that the foolishness of idol worship? The man takes the log, carves it, and worships it, and then throws it into the fire to warm himself? He was more ultimate than the log, yet he worships the log. That's the insanity of idol worship. We compose a God in our minds and with our hands. 
Divine simplicity, what we're saying here, recognizes that everything in God is God. Everything in God is God. His love is God. He is love. Maybe this, maybe this will help kind of flesh this out. Um, this helped me several years ago when I, when I talked through this. God is not this. He's not a slice of love, a slice of justice, a slice of wrath or mercy or righteousness. One-third this, one-third this, one-third this equals God. He's not uh, parted out or sliced out, a little this, a little that. He's not like a divine smorgasbord or, um, you know, buffet, you could say, uh, picking little things you want of God and putting them on a plate, and you have God. Uh, God is not this. His justice, his love, his patience, his eternity are not divided or disconnected things from one another, okay? It's not some, uh, he picks justice one time, he picks love another. Those things are not divided in God. They are distinguished, but not divided. And God is not this. His attributes are not kind of super glued to his essence, like we wear clothes. I have a jacket on, I can take the jacket off. God's love, God's justice is not on him, worn by him. Um, those things are not true of God. God is his attributes. So that means that his attributes are identical with his essence. And I don't have to rush through these. Um, Herman Bobbink again states that um, the fact of the matter is that scripture, this is his quote, to denote the fullness of the life of God uses not only adjectives, but substantives. It tells us not only that God is truthful, righteous, living, illuminating, loving, and wise, but also that he is truth. He is righteous. He is life, light, and love, and wisdom. Augustine says, in God, to be and to be just are all the same thing. To be and to be just are all the same thing. But think about this. If I have not love, I remain a man. Love is, is, a, is an attribute of myself that can be removed that, make, that doesn't affect my manhood in a sense. If God is without love, however, he ceases to be God. God can't just have love. He is love. And if he's without love, he ceases to be God. To be and to be love is the same in him. And I wish it were more so in, in myself. This is part of the practical application we'll get to in just a minute. Um, the, the division of my heart and my passions for various things in the world, I wish were more united in love. So also this means his attributes are identical with each other. I'm going to rush through these. Maybe a, maybe a picture <clears throat> will help. We don't confess a, a, a division of God's attributes. His attribute of love is not divided in a strict sense as one thing from another, from one another, okay? Uh, Ed and I share a common humanity, but Ed is not me and I'm not Ed, and we are, we are a division of one thing from another. God's attributes are not that way. We can distinguish between them, but we don't need to divide them. Think about it like this. Um, 
my body and my soul can be distinguished, right? I can distinguish my soul from my body. Uh, you can distinguish light from heat. But if I divide my soul from my body, what happens? I'm a dead man. So there's no, there's no problem in saying God's attributes can be distinguished. This actually helps us think about the Trinity. There's no problem in saying God's attributes can be distinguished, but not divided, okay? <clears throat> there's a real danger in saying that God's attributes can be divided. Um, so, and we don't confess that God's attributes can be divided. Our, our confession actually uses very specific language of uh, distinction, not division, not division. So, following me so far? Okay, maybe not. All right. So maybe maybe this maybe this picture will help you. Uh, I have a prism at home. If you've ever seen these things, it's really cool. I put it out in the sunlight. You get the pure. Uh, undivided oneness of light refracted through uh, creation to, to slow down that beam of light and fan it out to see the various things, the, the distinctions of the things in that one beam of light. So the undivided, simple, and pure light of God's essence is seen by us, known by us, and experienced by us slowed down, as it were, through the prism of creation and ultimately in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In him was the, the Godhead. The fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily in him. So our minds can't fully conceive how these things can be in the divine essence, but we can distinguish his attributes uh, of the one simple being of God by their effects in the world. Richard Muller says this, these effects, these operations of God in the world rightly and genuinely reveal the identity of God, indeed the indivisible essence of his utterly simple Godhead. Maybe, uh, maybe you've seen this. Pure white sunlight refracted through a raindrop. Now, who knows what you get when that happens? You get a rainbow. So even in that, in the account to Moses, when God reveals the, the bow in the clouds, and that, that Hebrew word there is not meant to be like a, a pretty frilly bow in your hair. <clears throat> it's actually the Hebrew word for battle bow. It's as if God's justice is cocked and aimed at himself. I set my bow in the clouds and it's bent toward me, saying that our salvation would come from him. So you see the pure light in which every color is contained, being bent through water, slowed down, so that we can grasp something of the essence of what pure light is. And we see that even refracted in a rainbow. I think it's a beautiful picture. Well, really quickly, back to Exodus 3. We began there. Let's look there again, just with kind of some of these thoughts running around in our head. There are two places in this encounter, and we're going to have to hustle, where God uh, gives us a revelation of the simplicity of his being. Look at verse 2, Exodus 3, 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. 
Simply put, this is a revelation of God's independence. He needs nothing uh, to burn, as it were. Uh, his aseity, he has life in and of himself. And this is what we see in the burning bush account. Uh, the fire that was in the bush was not dependent on the wood to burn. The fire had no uh, source of energy, we could say. Its energy source was in and of itself to burn. And this is what Moses saw. He's like, wait a second. This is a fire unlike any fire I've ever seen. Every fire I've ever known has a log to help it burn. And here is a fire that's burning apart from the wood. Behold, is what he says. Every fire has a source, no oxygen, no fire. And the fire was a pure fire. It was not dependent on the bush for its energy source to burn. And so we see a revelation of God's independence here. His, and therefore his simplicity. He's not composed of energy sources to make him who he is. If God is dependent upon anything, someone or something more ultimate than himself had to compose him, which is more ultimate than God. We've learned in Hebrews 3 that every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. The builder of all things is God. He's not built or composed by anything, not even his own attributes. And it was fascinating to think about this because when Moses penned those words in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God, God had to give him some sort of way to take um, a theological concept and put it into words through divine inspiration. And so when God... Uh, through Moses penned in the beginning God that was a statement of God's simplicity who was before God in the beginning to make him who he is nobody no thing it was a space time revelation of really what we see in the burning bush but secondly and quickly we see uh, God's revelation to Moses in verse 14 look at verse 14 so Moses says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What am I going to say to them? How am I going to correlate this message with what they've already considered uh, among themselves? Now, Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's a beautiful statement of the, uh, the independence, the aseity, and the simplicity of God. It was intended for Moses to take what was shown by God in the vision of the bush and correlate those things directly to the revelation of God's name, I am. I am is a revelation of pure being. It's not I am loving, and that's what I started out with. We can say God is love, but we have to kind of wipe that out and come back to the pure godness of God before we consider anything else. In, uh, in the uh, Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, it really literally translates here, the one who is. Ha'on is the Greek there. The one who is. God is irreducible in his self-revelation. None more fundamental than him. There was none behind him. There was none antecedent to him, making God who he is. But then he also reveals himself to his people. Look at verse 15. 
He doesn't leave it there. He gives some, as we saw, pure light, and then he refracts that light through the covenant revelation. He, he breaks it apart to, to help us see who he is. He says in verse 15, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and Jacob. And that's an expansion of this singular pure light, the simple essence of God, refracted through the economy of salvation. So uh, I think what we've seen so far is very true in this account uh, with Moses. Now, before we wrap up, I'm going to run through at warp speed some practical things, what that means for us practically. And I know you guys are, your head's swimming right now, I get it. So probably first off, we need to think about uh, divine simplicity gives us a way of speaking about God. Um, we don't just get to talk about him however we want. We talk about him the way he's revealed himself. We'll see that in Deuteronomy 6 this morning in a, in a passage we read together in worship. Moses asks, who shall I say sent me? And God says, I am who I am. And then gives him the vision of the burning bush. And so Moses received a way to speak about God, not only um, who he is among us as he acts in love and mercy and wrath, but who God is in and of himself in eternity. The revelation of I am underpins the Christian understanding of God and especially the Trinity. It gives us a really firm creator-creature distinction, and this is the danger. We've already hinted at it twice. Anytime we worship an idol, anytime we fashion a God in our minds or with our hands, we are melting the creator-creature distinction. And God is not us, and we are not him. And maintaining those two distinctions throughout our Christian life is vital, vital. And many Greek philosophers did just that. They thought about God apart from divine revelation. And so they formed a God of their own making, a God who's unlike the revelation of, of God here. Really, a, uh, the, Aristotle points uh, almost to this disconnected cold sky magnet that's kind of dragging the world along behind him. He doesn't have the revelation of the simple being of God uh, revealed to us in the economy of salvation, a God who's relatable to us in those things. Aristotle knows nothing of that God. Uh, simplicity grounds our worship of God. Um, he's ultimate reality, beloved. We have nothing else to go to in our worship than God. We don't look to the composer of God, someone back behind him, behind the scenes like Wizard of Oz, okay? We, we worship God as ultimate in our worship. Uh, he's the supreme object of worship. It grounds the word of God. If the revelation of God in the burning bush gave Moses, Moses this ultimate object of worship, it also gives him um, an ultimate word for worship, okay? Uh, over and over again, the people of God are called to the ultimacy of the word of God. God's word is final, we would say something like in the Reformed tradition, sola scriptura. We get that idea because God is singular in his essence. When he speaks, it's final. It's final. Is that mine? 
that's cool. Okay. Um, let's keep going. Uh, simplicity grounds the preaching of God. So, brothers, um, this, is, this is mainly for you guys, but think about this. Uh, pastors are tempted to highlight or dwell on one aspect of God to the neglect of others. Now, some of us who have come to Reformation realize that there was an overemphasis of uh, a certain aspect of God uh, in our past to the neglect of others. Uh, we would overemphasize the love of God to almost point it as peanut butter love. It's just kind of spread across the world in generosity in some way. There's no particularity to his love. Um, other preachers div- uh, dwell on divine justice. You get this preacher who just wants to rail on sin and God's justice. And you get this really imbalanced hellfire and damnation type of preaching that neglects other attributes. Okay, so the, the, the soft-pedaling megachurch preacher and the fire and brimstone preacher have really the same problem. They don't consider God, all of God, in his essence. They fail to preach the whole counsel of God. And we know what Paul said in Acts 20 about that. He's innocent of the blood of all men. He did not shrink from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. And then finally, um, just to wrap it up in two minutes, simplicity, this doctrine of divine simplicity, uh, grounds our sanctification, our sanctification. It grants us a deep consideration of the archetype of our sanctification. Uh, We remember the passage in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah saw himself in the light of a holy God. What did he cry out? Woe is me, I am undone, disintegrated. The parts of me in light of a holy God when broken apart and considered in and of themselves, I'm undone. His holiness blasts my existence apart. He saw all the parts about him that contradicted who God is which were out of harmony even within himself and gave and bore no correlation to who God was in his holiness. So I think we can say something like this. The singularity of our love for God is an echo of that greater reality that God is simple and therefore he's not self-conflicted. We come here every every Sunday morning, every Lord's Day because we're a conflicted people. We're a people who have divided interests, who have divided loves, who have sinful passions, plural. And we're coming here under the the one word of God to worship the one true living God to say something like with David in Psalm 86, 11, unite my heart that I may fear your name, right? As you go throughout the week, you, you think, Why are my loves so divided? Why do I not love God more? It's because our hearts are divided. And if God has the heart, he has every part of you from the core of a man. And so God commands something like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and your strength. So God's taking the multiplicity of who you are 
that Lego man who has disconnected parts and passions, and he's uniting them into a singular love unto him. Unite my heart to fear your name. Make those disparate and disconnected parts of me, God, singularly for you. So the singular simple essence of God is the grounds for uniting the different parts of our heart to worship. And we cannot fathom a God in contradiction to himself. And so if we can, then we can never expect to be any more than a contradictory people. So this is just a jet tour at 600 miles an hour uh, concerning the simplicity of God. I hope that it's given you something to think about uh, and especially in light of your own sanctification as a Christian who's following the Lord. Maybe, maybe we can cry out together this morning, unite my heart, O Lord, to fear your name. Okay, so let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your singularly simple essence. You are light. And in your light, we see light. Lord, we ask you to please grip our hearts this morning in light of these things. I know for some it was new and for probably all it was difficult. But I pray, Lord, that you would please grant our minds and our hearts to grab hold of these things, to love you more from the heart. Unite our hearts, O Lord, to fear your name. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Thank you.